Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at the big, complicated world of food and agriculture. I'm Erwin Lee, your podcast host and new Lazarus Fellow. We're kicking off our podcast season with an episode about hunger. To do so, we invited political agroecologist Dr. M. Jahi Chappelle into the studio. Jahi is a senior research fellow at Coventry University's Center for Agroecology, Water, and Resilience, as well as a fellow of Food First, also known as the Institute for Food and Development Policy. He's also recently published the book, Beginning to End Hunger, Food in the Environment in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, and Beyond, which ends up as a major part of our conversation. Let's take a listen. Jahi, can we start with you describing your journey into Belo Horizonte, understanding its people, society, and eventually its institutions? Sure. Uh, though I want to say, of course, it's uh, just like this book is beginning to end hunger. It's always a beginning to understand something. I think that's one of the things as a, a scholar. You never really get all the way to understanding something, just get closer. So my training is in conservation biology, uh, ecology and evolutionary biology. And I really came into uh, my graduate program some years ago wanting to figure out how can we uh, support sustainability at the same time as really supporting people's well-being. So now we often call it sustainable development, or sometimes we think that's too uh, co-opted, but that's the idea that uh, really motivated my work. And so I was looking for examples where you had some kind of governance change uh, alongside uh, human well-being, decisions, decisions around human well-being and the environment. And so agriculture is just a really natural way to bring those two together, uh, that it's a major land use, around 40% of non-ice-covered land in the world, uh, of course, and it's how we feed ourselves, by and large. So, Belarazanchi, just I, I ended up hearing about it sort of through the ether, through different friends who uh, had used it as an example in their classes, because uh, Francis and Anna Moore LePay had uh, written about it in one of their books very briefly. And... Looking into it around 2003, I got in touch with a professor named uh, Cecilia Rocha, and she'd been starting to study Belarusanchi for the past several years uh, because their programs had started in 1993, and it just, for me, it was this perfect connection between the different elements I wanted to do sort of from a political ecology and agroecology point of view. It was a city program that in 2003 had been established for around 10 years. Uh, There's really good reports that it had some uh, important improvements in food security, they were also connected with local farmers in that same landscape. So this local food idea before it was right when it was starting to get popular, the idea of local food. Uh, but working with local farmers uh, who are in a biodiversity hotspot, the Atlantic Rainforest, uh, it's a very heavily deforested area. So it actually gets, I think, a lot less conservation attention than it deserves. But so it was a really great place to look at, okay, well, if they're working with local farmers and they've already approved food security in the city by connecting people to some degree with the farmers, is that also having an effect on the environment and biodiversity? And so that was how I, I got into starting to look at it. And just the more I learned, the more it seemed like a perfect case to examine all these issues together. It's great to hear about how your training and your studies and your research has all come together to understand more and more about these people's stories. Um, Yasmasan, the municipal government body in charge of the city's food security programs, piloted a series of initiatives from the people's restaurants to school meals. And I was wondering, in your research, did you come across anything that struck you as particularly innovative? I know there is this pioneering concept of food with dignity. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if there's anything that just surprised you as you were learning more and more about the city's programs. Uh, you know, I've been 
studying Belarus Anchi for about 15 years. So it's sort of, it's hard to go back to that, that those first moments. But um, I think uh, what most pleased me um, and something that several friends of mine who aren't specialists in the area have pointed out in the book really spoke to them as a sort of a story uh, was when we went to uh, my first visit there was Cecilia Rocha uh, went to a city health post uh, Smasan the food security secretariat partners with all the other city departments with relevant functions as you would in health because Brazil has a universal health care system, uh, health has posts everywhere, even the poorest neighborhoods. And so that was one way that Smasan could make sure that they were trying to address the poorest residents by uh, partnering with the health uh, department. So we went down there, and they had this, uh, in one of the poor neighborhoods of, of Belarusanchi, and they had this uh, cultural day. And they had a series of plays and sort of actors and skits. Uh, talking to kids about healthy food, about fruits and vegetables, but then also about uh, culture, about being proud of coming from different places, different heritages, uh, different skin colors, being uh, really trying to teach them to be empowered and to know where they came from and be proud of it, which I thought was really interesting and exciting that they had this holistic approach to food that even extended into talking about personal development and sort of cultural and community development. Uh, but one of the things that really struck me that I, I often uh, think back to is after the series of skits, um, they had us talk to some of the parents, and they're telling us one of the things that they do in different Smasan programs is help teach parents and kids about uh, healthier eating. And one of the things for parents, especially for poorer parents, is alternatives to soda. Uh, you know, it's, it's just sugary. There's no health value to it. And uh, obesity has become a huge problem in Brazil, as it is in many parts of the world. And so they were just talking about making fresh fruit juices and blending together uh, carrots and oranges, nice fresh juice. And actually, this woman who was um, from a poorer background uh, was talking about how much she had learned uh, coming to the health center and her kids coming and talking to her about what they learned in school, that she hadn't realized how bad soda was for them. And she hadn't realized how relatively easy it was to make something healthier. And she was saying that she would put this uh, uh, orange carrot juice into soda bottles, and the kids wouldn't know the difference. Um, a little sneaky, and you know, probably doesn't work with in every case or every kid. But uh, she said, you know, her kids just they got really excited about this, you know, orange carrot juice, and that, that's all they drank. She said, we don't drink soda anymore, uh, except for my husband; he still drinks it. But the rest of us, you know, we just, you know, this is tasty and it's better for us, and. You know, the key to that story to me was just that she was excited about the process. She obviously felt empowered by learning more, and she felt empowered to take steps to try and improve her, her family's health. And at least from what I saw there, it seemed like, you know, there's this process and system in place so she can keep growing in that. And that's what's most exciting to me is when people are able to take possession of knowledge and their right to food with dignity and not only learn more, but then become in a position where they can demand more. And that's something that the city of Belarusanchi uh, and Smasan seems to embrace. Uh, I start the book with an example of how they said they were excited they were, uh, had been threatened with a lawsuit to expand the programs uh, because they said we want people to really own these programs. So they should be suing us if they think we should be doing more. Yeah, that's incredible. I don't know of any government agencies here that would be happy with a lawsuit, especially in these times. Exactly. Yeah. So we heard a bit about the amazing qualitative experiences and anecdotal evidence that suggests Smasan's programs are really doing good. Um, can you give us a few insights into also the quantitative measures that are indicating that these programs are succeeding? Absolutely. So um, 
in terms of direct measures of hospitalization due to infant malnutrition uh, between around 1995 and 2015 in the city, that's gone down by about 60 percent. Uh, for infant and under five mortality, which are also very tied to um, maternal health, especially eating fruits and vegetables, micronutrients, as well as, of course, what the kids eat once they're born and what their nursing mother uh, eats, uh, those went down by 60 and 70 percent infant mortality and under five mortality. And then one of the interesting results that um, hadn't been reported before that I've seen, at least in the book, um, before I, I researched this for the book, was that diabetes, hospitalization due to diabetes, has gone down by 33 percent. And so that seems like another exciting indicator that you're not just getting uh, maybe more calories to people who need it and more dietary diversity maybe to people who had insufficient food. But maybe there's also other dietary changes in terms of people who were eating the kinds of foods that weren't that were maybe having giving them problems with diabetes. And maybe there's been a reduction in junk food alongside an increase of fruits and vegetables. So, you know, that's that would be circumstantial trying to figure out if that's the case. But we know the diabetes went down. And so that just seems like a really... Uh, several several exciting indicators that the programs already had an, an effect. Absolutely, and it's encouraging to hear. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, also we did. Uh, I started talking about my training in conservation biology, and so we did measure biodiversity on around uh, ten farms in the Belarusanchi area that were working with the approximately five that were working with the city and five that weren't. So a small sample size, but we did find some indications that the farms that work with the city seem to have higher biodiversity, that we saw more different kinds of ant species, you know, it's just the start of a biodiversity indicator. Uh, and we saw more forest species, you know, rainforest species on the farms that work with Smasan. So some um, initial indicators that there also might be a sustainability impact. Absolutely. And we'll be sure, listeners, to get to the stories of these farmers a little bit later. So now that we've touched on some of the achievements of Smasan's programs, I wanted to touch also on maybe a few challenges that the programs encountered. You write a little bit about this. Um, in particular, I remember a moment in your book when you mentioned that a nonprofit uh, stopped partnering with Smasan because they thought that the organization wasn't doing enough to empower community rallying or community support. And Smasan's reply was that they didn't have the capacity to do so, that it was ultimately up to community leaders to achieve that type of broad-based support. Yes, about food security, but also so much about developing civil society, developing substantive democracy. And so I'm wondering, when we reach that impasse, what do we do as a society? Well, that's a, a pretty heady question. I, I mean, I think Part of what I'm trying to say in the book as well is that uh, at the same time that we really need to make more progress in democracy, if we want to make progress in food security, um, that that's going to vary how you do that in place to place. Uh, in Belarusanchi, I mean, I think that there is a, and in Brazil actually at large, a, a challenge there that to some extent it, it makes sense for the city office of food security to say it's not our job to develop community leaders. At the same time, Part of the hallmark of their programs has been their holistic approach. And, you know, I was a little bit surprised when that was their answer. I guess uh, just thinking about it now, even in this conversation, that um, given their holistic approach, it, it's arguably something they should say that you know, we need to take on because it's part of food security, uh, just like they have citizens uh, uh food security councils that have been very influential, around two-thirds, or not around, two-thirds uh, civil society and one-third government representatives. And so in the poor neighborhoods as well, they saw that that's some of the places where the program has been less effective, that some of their programs to reach the poorest neighborhoods involved having uh, 
produce shop owners bring fruits and vegetables up to those areas. And in some cases, they were uh, uh, having robberies and, and a few cases of assault. And uh, according to some graduate students who had studied this program uh, in their interviews, that part of it was the city had partnered with someone who sort of represented himself as a local leader, but didn't really have buy-in from the community. So I, I think on the, uh, the the easy answer is that it's something that the city should be investing in or, or working more directly with partners. And so the example that I, was, um, I had in the book of the, the group that sort of walked away, it was, I think, in part because they felt like the city wasn't supporting mm-hmm. the growth of leadership and supporting them in, in helping foster that. Um, from the city's point of view, giving money to a, a nonprofit to just have them thrive, I could see why they would uh, question that. But finding a way to, to creatively get around those issues uh, might be something that they should do more actively. But I think there's um, also just an interesting challenge in terms of capacity that you mentioned. Uh, one of the big talking points, uh, great talking points about Smasan is that they've achieved really huge amount of progress in food security while only costing around 2% of the annual city budget. Uh, they've never cost more than that in the history of the program for 25 years. And uh, Cecilia Rocha writes uh, about this as being both a bonus and maybe a limitation. That that means that it also is tempting for the city to never increase that amount of money because Belarusanchi's gotten this worldwide acclaim on this limited budget. So uh, why go beyond the what's you know very uh, low impact on the budget when you're getting such great results comparatively? Uh, and one of the things I talk about in the book is just the challenges of policy change that. Of course, once you start addressing a problem and it gets less acute, even before it's resolved, that makes it easier for other things to take your attention away. So I, I think there's uh, several challenges that come together there, but that that nut of how do you empower people uh, within the community is something I think also Brazil and many countries and communities struggle with. And uh, arguably, the Workers' Party, uh, which was the leftist Brazilian party that brought this program into uh, into being and had been in power nationally until recently, uh, they had really had an agenda of both changing democracy and increasing social welfare. And a historian, Hernan Buera, uh, whose book I use quite a lot, um, he talks about how, to some extent, the PT chose uh, working with elites to make sure they could have funding for their programs rather than redoing democracy, though they still did some of both. Um, I would say that wasn't necessarily the case directly in Belarusanchi, but that larger political change or approach, I think, did influence you know, overall priorities. I find that dilemma that you had mentioned a little bit earlier with Belo Horizonte looking at its budget and saying that this only costs us 2% of our budget to fund these programs, but uh, can we go more than this now? But at the same time, people are applauding us for how fiscally restrained we are. Uh, how has Belo Horizonte dealt with this sort of international attention that it's been receiving about its programs, um, sort of exploring now the international conversation that is happening around the city? Yeah, that's been a really interesting feedback and, and something that actually probably would benefit from some dedicated study beyond sort of my impressions. But um, having talked to them for over 15 years and, and working with them, uh, it's really, I think, helped secure the programs, the international attention, the awards, the writing about it by, like I said, Francis Morlapay and others and, and Cecilia's work itself um, before mine. 
and so that's I think helped it survive because it's been through the uh, not just twenty five years of implementation, but that's uh, I think seven different mayoral terms, uh, five different mayors, and three different parties, and there's a lot of turmoil uh, not turmoil a lot of um turnover often in especially city government in Brazil that often a mayor will come in and fire an entire staff um, of the entire city and then rehire people selectively. Uh, and actually that happened for the first time uh, this past uh, mayoral election uh, a year ago. And the new mayor, Alexandre Khalil, fired all 3,000 city employees, uh, but he rehired you know different ones, and he actually did rehire people within Smasan. This is not an atypical thing to do. So uh, it just was actually an exception that Belarus actually hadn't done it in 25 years. But so for him to reconstitute it, I think, really shows uh, the power of the international attention and praise. And of course, I think the, the fact that it's been effective within the city as well. But one thing that uh, you consistently see is that it's not really well known within the city. Uh, it's not that much written about as a coherent program. It's written about the individual programs, the school meals, the re- popular restaurants. And as I write in the book, I think part of the strength of it is that it's holistic and coherent. So that, I think, has also been really important from the international attention to not just maintain individual programs that have popularity and people know about it, that, oh, my kid's getting this great school meal, but having the fact that you're praised and having uh, members of state from Africa have visited uh, to look at how those programs can be applied other places. Um, all that, I think, has helped maintain the, the fact that mayors want to keep that as part of their portfolio, this, this unique city program. And so far, they haven't uh, expanded it like I might have liked, but they haven't defunded it either or reduced it um, very much. So that's been, I think, a, a key um, interaction and something that there's so much more to be, to be thought about there. So also in the book and where I find it gets exceptionally fascinating is that you go beyond the city's borders. You start to inquire about the farmers that these programs are supporting and sort of the practices that they have on their farms. And I'm wondering now, what do their stories tell us about the prospects for economically empowering small farmers and sort of the consequences that might result from that? So. There's a lot of uh, different things there, but I guess the most important one did seem like the farmers that work with the city uh, all said they had more uh, confidence and hope for the coming years. They felt like they sort of had a, a degree of stability or resilience because selling directly to the city uh, through various programs that brought farmers in through direct farmers markets, uh, selling to the school meals and the popular restaurant programs, they felt like they had some stability and, and reliability. And so... Uh, what was interesting is we didn't see um, distinct practice changes, probably because the farmers hadn't kept exact records, and so they was a little woolly trying to figure out what they changed or not. But um, there's a lot of research on how economic stability and uh, be able to make a profitable livelihood ties to better, more sustainable practices, soil conservation, and, and the ability to maybe take some sacrifices and yield where you know it'll help by like, taking land out of production or not expanding. And so we think that might be part of the dynamic that it happened, but the farmers that had direct sales in general did seem to have this feeling of stability. So actually a couple of farmers who weren't with the city program uh, also said, well, I have direct sales. I don't sell to retailers. Um, and they also seem to be more confident. So uh, this larger idea of reconnecting food systems, uh, connecting farmers and consumers, seem to be playing out there in a, in a really interesting way that Smasan is one way you can do that, but it wasn't the only way. 
And um, we've done some subsequent research with a former postdoc of mine named Johan Oldekamp. And uh, Brazil started national food security programs called Zero Hunger in 2003. And institutional buying has been a huge part of those, buying food from small farmers for schools, hospitals, uh, et cetera. And so that seemed to be getting at part of it, though also we found that there wasn't a big change in farmer livelihoods from those programs. Uh, it's seemingly because, actually, there wasn't that stability. The farmers were saying, actually, the application process and reapplication process and paperwork and the prices were all too variable. And so it seems like maybe Belarusanchi city government had been able to provide more stability than the national program, though I do know that institutional buying has been an important contribution uh, across Brazil for small farmers. But that aspect of sustainability, or uh, stability, rather, seem to be missing. And so that reliability, stability, um, and maybe connection you know, locally rather than going through the federal government seems like a really important way to support farmers. Just you know that, that peace of mind when you know a program's been around now for 25 years and you know the consumers are there and you know they're willing to pay uh, you know, decent prices. Absolutely. You also speak a little bit about how you reached these farmers. I think uh, you certainly had the courtesy to try to set up appointments and make sure that you pin down a specific time that you could meet them. But what was it that you had actually ended up doing with your team to meet these farmers, hear their stories, and how were you received? Yeah, so that was um, that was a, one of those funny challenges of planning uh, meets the field. So uh, because I had uh, you know a research visa and I was working with the city and they had the list of the 60 farmers or so who they'd worked with over the past uh, five to 10 years uh, and their phone numbers, I was just calling them saying, yeah, I want to come down and just ask you about your experiences, ask you if there's some neighbors who don't work with the program I can interview, uh, ask you about biodiversity and uh, or I would say actually ants, and they you know then they would latch onto that because biodiversity is a bit abstract, and um, they would say, well, we don't have ant problems, and so well, it's not about the past or <laughs> ant. But um, and so I found that they were really reluctant to set up a time for me to come by, um, and actually they were really reluctant to even talk to me. Like I sort of had to get in right away that I'm working with the city, which seemed to for most of them to de- decrease their suspicion that not everyone. <laughs> um, but still, they would they would sort of say, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm out of town, and then my wife's going to be busy, and we've got this. And just, I, it took me weeks. I just didn't get any appointment set up. And I think finally, my one of my friends in the, then in the city government, uh, Zoraya Souza, who's in charge of the local small farmer programs, she said, well, why don't you just try just going in and talking to some of them? Now, here's some of the ones that we work with for a while. It should be okay. And I was very skeptical, but I just went, and just showing up there, like, oh, this is great. Oh, yeah, if you want to talk, I can... Yeah, I could talk in about an hour, and if you want to look at the ants or the plants or whatever you want, that's fine. Just wander around, help yourself, and you know, I'm kind of busy. But then, um, you know, once they got sort of done with whatever they're in the middle of, they would sit and talk with me indefinitely. And and in Brazil, there's this hospitality, you know, culture, and so they, you know, do you want some coffee? Do you want to, you know, we can sit down? You need some uh, some some cookies and biscoitos and. And yeah, we just have this long conversation that they'd be very uh, open, uh, very free ranging, and uh, you know, by and large, and very welcoming. And so I think it's just for whatever reason, talking on the phone didn't really click with them. But the hospitality culture of, of Brazil just showing up—they're like, oh yeah, yeah, welcome, stranger. Like you know, come sit down for a little bit, and uh, you know, often I would get sent off with some fresh produce, of course. <laughs> 
Yeah, I asked this question because some of our listeners are aspiring researchers or academics and that are coming through their methodology. And so I want to know, is it just fundamentally about trying to meet people where they are and trying to be in their spaces um, and show them that you're here to listen? Yeah, uh, that's actually a really good observation and something I, I try to come to in the book as far as, I would say, research and, and larger movement building or change building. Um, actually, I think it was at a conference here at Yale some years ago that I, I was saying there's often the sense of if you build it, they will come. But if you go where they are, they're right there. And so, I mean, you have to be aware of what culture you're in. But being in Brazil and learning that, at least in this region, it was okay to just sort of show up and that people would not be resentful. They would just, you know, they would show you some, a lot of hospitality. Um, and of course, listening to what they're actually saying and showing that you're you're hearing it, hearing their story and not imposing your own on it. I think that's very key. You know, some of them got a little bit nervous when I said I was with the city. Others seemed to be fine. But, um, you know, I, I you know, went through the whole uh, institutional research uh, review board, you know, IRB uh, uh, processes. So I tell them, you know, that it could be confidential, um, that didn't have to be recorded, they didn't have to answer at all, and nothing that would get back directly to the city. Um, but also, if they had any complaints, that this could help help them indirectly in terms of giving the city a better idea of what it could do better. And yeah, you sit and listen for a bit to people's story, and, and they really tend to, uh, I think, you know, tell you quite a lot. And I think from a research point of view, you get a much better uh, understanding of the situation and the place and the people if you're able to listen. So I did semi-structured interviews, so I had questions, but I also would try and make sure if it went off in some direction to allow that and, and incorporate that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think listening is just super key in so many different areas, listening respectfully and actually, you know, the old term of active listening, you know, repeating back, making sure you're understanding and really engage with people where they are is so powerful. Uh, I think both to get more accurate research, but also to build the kind of coalitions we need for, for social change. So now that we've discussed a lot of what's in the book, I'm wondering if you had the chance today to write an epilogue, is there anything you would add? We've spoken a bit about the sort of modern day developments around Brazil and food security. Uh, well, so one thing that I I would like to do is, it, uh, is to get back and see what's going on, uh, both with the new mayor who... Uh, is from a third political party. You know, so there's been three political parties. The PT, who governed it for around uh, 18, the first 18 years. Uh, the previous mayor is from a different party, and this one's from a third party even that's not allied directly with the PT. So seeing what's happening there at the local level, uh, where I'm hearing good things about the uh, new secretary in charge of the programs, comes from a background in participatory social uh, social welfare, uh, that would be really great to do in terms, of, in terms of additional research. In terms of an epilogue I could sort of do right now, I mean, I guess I would really like to expand further on the last chapter where I talk about how can we think about this beyond Brazil? What does this mean beyond Belarusanchi? And that gets back to what we were just talking about a bit in terms of going where people are and listening. So the other element besides semi-structured interviews I did was participant, participant observation, uh, just going and you know, being in someone's day. Um, you know, with their permission and just sort of observing what's going on and interacting. And uh, even going further, uh, some people have called this reverse transdisciplinarity, which sounds incredibly jargony, but um, for especially jargony for a, a really simple thing in a way, which is uh, just working with people 
and helping them in whatever their actual task is. So if they ask you to, you know, uh, hoe a row or help carry something or whatever, just getting engaged in what they're actually doing. Um, I think I would like to expand on that and exp- have expanded on other projects around the United States. Uh, so like the Detroit Black Food Security Network, um, I've had some various contacts with over the t- over the years. And one of the things Malik Yakini, who's one of the people who's been uh, really pivotal in, in that network's formation and, and success, or, or relative success, there's still got a lot of work to do. Um, at one conference I was with uh, at with him, some people were asking, well, what can we do to get involved from the University of Michigan? You know, that was about 45 minutes away. You know, how can we help, you know, change Detroit for you? And he said, well, you can come and you can help us pull weeds. And people were sort of, some people were sort of taking it back. Like, well, yeah, but we want to change the system. He's like, well, what we need right now is people to help pull weeds. And the other thing I got actually into sort of a Twitter conversation with some of the students is I think even – so to start with, I think, you know, there's sometimes a presumption that those of us coming from a university background or wherever sort of we have the solutions in our head and if only the people on the ground would listen to us. And often they know better or equally well what they need or they have information we don't have that might help change our analysis a bit even if we've got a really good um, idea but even if you are sort of right that you've got some great input that you need for some local program, if you're not stuck in there, if you're not from there, if you don't know the people, then why why would they listen to you? Why should they? If they came and told you how you should be doing your classwork or you're doing your thesis, you wouldn't necessarily listen to them. They just showed up and said, well, no, I'm really, I'm really smart and I can help you do this better. But if they spent some time with you, you know, you had coffee or they, you know, helped you with some smaller tasks, you might go, okay, yeah, well, we can work together. You just have to build trust and you have to listen and this just being uh, uh, in each other's lives, uh, I think, is really important. And that's one of the other challenges, actually, in Belarusanchi that uh, goes back to what we are talking about before with the local leaders, that there was um, – there's the city uh, food security council – Food Policy Council, but there's not a lot of informal spaces for people to interact. And I mean, Belarusanchi is huge, but in terms of having people really go and spend time in those neighborhoods, uh, spend time with the farmers. Actually, Zaria Souza, uh, who, who is no longer with uh, the government after she was there for like 20 years, um, but uh, she was someone that the farmers just, they seemed like they saw her as a friend. I saw other administrators of that same program, and the farmers sort of like, oh, he doesn't really know our name. And But Zariah came, and it was like they're having a, you know, a, a reunion. And I think that's just so important. We underestimate how important that personal connection is, um, you know, just being able to have trust and feel like someone cares about you as a person and has put the work in to show you that they care and support you. So just uh, trying to grapple with all these ideas, um, I guess I'll just say especially even my first book talk, I've been giving a series of book talks, was at Shaw University. And uh, the civil rights icon Ella Baker is an alumna, uh, was an alumna of um, Shaw, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, was founded at Shaw. And so I've added to my talk, actually, just thinking about Ella Baker, because her approach was so much based in sometimes what we call now participatory democracy, in not elevating big leaders above us, but building the leadership of people among us. And just some of the examples of what she's done, just or what she used, she did, was so fascinating. When she was organizing, she would go and just you know drive people to their job, get them changed to help them you know get the bus, just listen for hours. And this kind of just old-fashioned sort of deep organizing is so powerful and it's so under-supported. Um, I've worked in nonprofit uh, sector in, in the United States for several years before my current position, 
and just almost everyone seems to agree just that funding for just going and being with people uh, is not there, yet we know from both research and practice, just so powerful. Absolutely. And I think this is actually a perfect segue into our last question, which is about how we should rethink hunger. What do you hope someone takes away from your book and thinking about this challenge of ending hunger, not just maybe where they are, but everywhere? Yes, I mean, um, it's uh, always tempting to give sort of the, the, the pat quick answers because being quick is always to be to be uh, praised often in this kind of format. So, I mean, um, Francis Moore LePay said years ago, we don't have a scarcity of food, we have a scarcity of democracy. And I used to think, oh, you know, that's a, a cute phrase, but, you know, I'm not sure that's really, that seems too cute. And, you know, the great thing about visionaries is you, you over time, maybe you sort of get up to where you understand what they're really saying. And... You know, it's not just about voting, which is sort of how I was thinking about democracy. Like, oh, we, we do need people to vote more. You know, make sure you go out and vote, everyone. But that's just the beginning of democracy. Um, as one of my friends uh, uh, said after reading the book, like, I think what you're saying is that voting is the absolute minimum we can be doing. Um, but we need to do a lot more than that. So working with people, speaking to people, um, building these spaces for voice, really what hunger in the world is about is a, a lack of voice and power. It's not about a lack of food. We have enough food in the majority of cases around the world. And even where we don't, the way to uh, improve production with farmers is often through them having better prices, higher prices, having more impact on how the food system is designed, uh, which is the ideas behind food sovereignty to a large extent. And so that can be very lofty. So there's this tension between the, the nice sort of pithy phrase of scarcity democracy and what do you actually do with that? And so to me, some of the pioneering work of Belarzanchi has been these participatory spaces and what we can really think of, how we can think about that, uh, along with the holism of Belarzanchi's projects, is being involved where we are, uh, you know, whether that's with a, a CSA or uh, you know, a local food program in the school or uh, whatever. It could be a school garden. It could even be something unrelated. I think just getting reinvolved in this public sphere is a really important step. And this is something researchers have talked about for a while. Um, Robert Putnam in his book, Bowling Alone, most famously, that sort of our bowling leagues, our uh, religious religious organizations, there's a lot less participation in public things as a group. And I think just getting involved in some kind of service organization. And then if you do that, the step that we often lack is connecting with other ones and then having a joint agenda, a joint voice saying, it's not just me, but it's the cafeteria workers at the university and the local farmers and the students that want you know, this kind of change, or it's the, uh, the professors and the students and uh, uh, some city people we've talked to and the teachers. You know, making sure that you really can extend these coalitions and going where people are, uh, people from different social classes, economic classes, that can be super powerful. And especially the, the urban-rural thing is really tough right now. I and mean, we have more conversations between farmers where they're really, their voice is really heard um, alongside workers, ag workers, restaurant workers. I think we could really change uh, hunger everywhere. You've been listening to Chewing the Fat, a podcast from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. To hear more from Jahi, you can follow him on Twitter at mjahi or visit beginningtoendhunger.com. This episode was produced by myself and Thomas Hagen, mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio, music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis De Felice. 
program support by Jacqueline Monod, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. If anything said today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. Until next time, folks.